Thank you, Alice. Thank you, Trevor. Good evening, everyone. We have got open arms for broken hearts is uh, a line from one of my favorite songs at the moment by one of my favorite bands at the moment. And Elbow sang open arms at this year's Red Nose Day. And I want to play a brief clip of it. Some of you might enjoy it. Some of you may hate it. Uh, that's okay. Uh, but it kind of introduces the theme for this evening and it captures a core aspect of the teaching of Jesus. chapter 10. It's page 1042 in the Pew Bibles. In our uh, Essential Word series, we're spending three services looking at the teaching of Jesus, and uh, this is the final one. And this morning we looked at the parable of the weeds or the tares. Tonight we come to another one of Jesus' short stories with a sting in the tail, a really well-known one. 
probably after the, the parable of the prodigal son, this is the, the best known parable of Jesus, the parable of the good Samaritan. Now, even if you don't normally go to church or read the Bible, that phrase, good Samaritan, means something. It communicates something. Most people know what it's referring to. Here's a a bunch of headlines, recent news headlines, that include the phrase good Samaritan. And when people see it, they immediately know that they're going to read about a story of someone who has shown compassion to another human being. Someone has stopped to help a person in need. Someone has chosen to express kindness rather than simply walk past or walk away. Below most people, I want to suggest, have an idea what the term Good Samaritan means. And they maybe even also know some of the details of the original Good Samaritan story as told by Jesus. It's really important to remember and remind ourselves why Jesus told the story. Why did he tell the parable of the Good Samaritan? What prompted him? Why did he share it? And so before we explore the content, I want to consider the context. Luke 10, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus' teacher. He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, what have I got to do in order to live life to the full and to live life forever? Here was a man looking for answers. Yes, mixed motives maybe. He's trying to test Jesus. But he was looking for answers, but instead of getting answers, he gets more questions. It's often the way it works. It's often the way Jesus worked. And he responded to people's questions with more questions. And so he asks this so-called expert, well, what is written in the law? And how do you read it? And in response to this question or these questions, the man comes out with an answer. A great answer. The correct answer, according to Jesus. It's a 30-word answer. And if you're looking, and I've said this before, if you're looking for a summary of the whole Bible, if you're trying to condense 66 books, 1,189 chapters, 33,000 plus verses into one sentence that captures the central message of a sacred text, 30 words that summarize the heart of the Christian faith, then here they are. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. There's the Bible in a nutshell. There's how to discover eternal life. Because whenever the expert says these 30 words, Jesus rather simply replies, go, do this, and you will live. And I wonder, do we sometimes complicate the Christian faith unnecessarily? Love God. Love others. And if you do that, you'll live. But which is more difficult Which is more demanding, loving God or loving other people? 
Well, generally, I want to suggest it's other people. But at one level, that depends on who the other people are. You see, loving your family and your friends is one thing, but loving the unlovable, loving the stranger, loving the person who winds you up and does your head in, that's a different issue altogether. It's much easier to love God than to love certain kinds of people. And yet, we must, we must love God with our entire beings and at the same time we must also love others. You can't separate the two. We can't claim to be in a right relationship with God and then treat other people whatever way we like. And the expert in the law seems to have grasped the first 24 words. The loving God dimension, but it's the second part he really struggles with. The idea of loving his neighbor as himself seems far more challenging and slightly unclear. So he asks a further question. And it's another great question. He said, Jesus, who is my neighbor? And in response to that, Jesus tells a story. The story of the Good Samaritan. Another short provocative story that connects with people, that engages hearts and minds, that stirs people's emotions. And I want to read, I want to read it for you. Luke 10. Starting at verse 30. We'll keep our seats for a change. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. And they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan... As he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I will return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you have. And Jesus pauses as the implications of the story kind of filter through the minds of those listening to it for the very first time. And we are so familiar with it, I realize. But as the information does filter through, Jesus then asks another question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who lay at the side of the road? And that's a really easy question. Despite how uncomfortable and awkward the implications are. And so the expert says, the one who had mercy on him. And so then Jesus looks him in the eye and says those four words, go and do likewise. Go and have mercy on others. The beaten up, the messed up, the people who are just like you, the people who are different from you, your so-called enemies, the vulnerable, the weak, the outsider, the outcast, those on the fringes of society. You want to find life? You want to find an altogether different, deeper, richer quality of life, says Jesus? Then love God and love others. And as we reflect just a little bit further on on this story, I want to remind us of three journeys that this story encourages us to go on and take And I say remind 
because I shared this with the morning congregation back in January 2009 during our State of the Heart series. A journey from right answers and right beliefs to right practice, from non-involvement to active compassion, and a journey from just a religion to a way of life. Three journeys that, irrespective of how long you've been a Christian and how many times you hear this, I think we need to keep returning and making these journeys because as we travel through this life as Christians, we often get diverted off course. Journey one. The expert of the law was encouraged to go from right answers to right beliefs or right beliefs to right practice. Love God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the right answer. That is the right answer. You will inherit eternal life. This is what we believe all humanity should be doing. But the challenge is to go from knowing it and from believing it to doing it. And that brings us back to these two words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. Orthodoxy means right belief, orthopraxy, right practice. As Christians, we believe we should love God. We believe we should love our neighbor. We believe we are to go into all the world and share Jesus. We believe, as you were thinking about this morning, we are to be salt and light. We're to flavor, we're to preserve, we're to shine. We believe in justice. We believe that God's got a heart for the poor and urges us to have a heart for the poor. We believe we should love our enemies. We should pray for those who persecute us. We believe lots of great things. But the challenge lies in the journey from right belief to right practice. The expert believed that the true neighbor of the victim in the story was the one who had mercy. And he was right. But Jesus didn't leave it there because Jesus never leaves it at right answers. And so he said, go and do. Practice this. Live this out. Because Jesus doesn't want there, never has done, and I don't believe ever does want there to be a glaring gap between the two. There cannot be a contradiction between what we believe and how we behave. Because that's what confuses a a watching world. That's what confuses so many people today. They hear what we claim to believe. But then they observe our lives. They observe my life. And at times there is this gap. And discipleship for me is the process of narrowing the gap between belief and and behavior so that there is consistency and integrity and authenticity. Go and do likewise. Journey number two, from non-involvement to active compassion. Essentially, this is a story about people not wanting to be involved in the lives of others. The priest and the Levite weren't up for the challenge or the risk of engaging with someone in need. But I don't want to be too hard on them because although they did nothing, there were decent reasons for doing nothing. For one, the body on the road could have been planted by bandits in order to lure other travelers into stopping, making them an easy target. And so the priest and the Levite just might have decided, you know something, I don't want to risk my own suffering 
by getting involved with that particular need. Secondly, we also know that if the guy lying at the side of the road was in fact dead, then contact with the corpse would have defiled the priest and the Levite from performing their duties in the temple according to their law. And so they had at least two really good reasons to keep walking. And the thing is, I can usually think of lots more. I am too busy. It's it's inconvenient. I don't have the time. I don't have the energy. I don't have the money. It might not be safe. It's someone else's problem. And anyway, I've got enough problems of my own today. And non-involvement and the choice to walk past on the other side is the attractive choice because it's the safe one. It's, It's the nice one. It's by far the more comfortable one. But is it, and I've asked this question of myself so many times, is it always an option for true followers of Jesus Christ? Does Jesus not expect all Christians to be good Samaritans? Someone has put it like this. You cannot be, and maybe this is too strong, you cannot be a Christian and not be involved with people in the Jericho Road. The Jericho Road where this guy was beaten up and left for dead was a notoriously dangerous stretch of the road between Jerusalem and Jericho. It was steep, it was treacherous, it was known as the way of blood. And so the priest and the Levite might have thought to themselves, well, in a sense, this guy got what was coming to him. I mean, he should have taken a safer route home. He made a bad choice. And now he's suffering as a consequence of that choice. And I do think like that sometimes. I look at someone in need and I justify my own non-involvement because I reckon, well, it's partly their fault they're in this state. This mess. They've made some bad choices, poor choices, sinful choices. And so they've got to deal with the consequences. They've made their bed, and so they'd better lie in it. And again, whenever I reason like that, I wonder, do I have the luxury to do it? Do we only help others because they deserve it? Or do we help because we love them? You see, there is no worthiness test for Christian love. At least I don't believe there is. We can't just stand back or walk past because we think, well, that particular person or those group of people, they don't actually deserve my love. And the reason I I say that is because when I look at Jesus, I discover someone who loved without cause. He saved us because of his love and his mercy. Was I guilty of sin? Yes. Do I deserve God's judgment? Absolutely. Do I deserve to be rescued from a life without hope and from a hopeless eternity? No, I don't. And yet God chooses to rescue me. Jesus met our need, our greatest need, which is for forgiveness, not because any one of us sitting in this church this evening deserved it, but because he loved He loved. And I think it's really interesting to note that we're told virtually nothing about the guy in the story, the victim. Don't know his name, his occupation, whether he was rich, whether he was poor, his age, nothing. But it points to an important principle. Love doesn't depend 
on any characteristic of the one being saved except their need. We're surrounded by people in need. In our homes, our streets, communities, our workplaces. People with emotional needs, yes. Physical needs, social needs, deep spiritual needs. And the choice is simple. Either we keep walking past or else we love. Either it's non-involvement or it is active compassion. And I think this story clearly illustrates that active compassion is the right choice. It's the only choice, according to Jesus, it would seem for those who want to love God with all their heart, soul, strength and mind and love their neighbor. Because in the story, Jesus says that when the Samaritan saw the man, what does it say? He had pity on him. It's not a great translation in the NIV. Some of your translations that you have will say he had compassion on him. And that implies a deep, intense feeling of sympathy, something that actually affects a human being to the very core churns their stomach up. That's that's compassion. And the crucial aspect of compassion is that it's a feeling that drives you then to act. Very often it is a feeling that drives you to sacrificial action. Feeling sorry for someone, and that we've said that, feeling sorry for someone's not compassion. Feeling sorry for someone's sympathy. It's whenever you feel sorry for someone and then do something for that person. That's when we express compassion. And Jesus actually details in a series of almost like six verbs just how active this man's compassion was because it says he went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured oil and wine on his wounds, he put him on a donkey, he brought him to an inn, he took care of him. It's all active. It's all doing. From non-involvement to active compassion is the second journey. And the final one, from just a religion to a way of life, Christianity can never be mere ritual. It's, it's always got to be a lifestyle. It's that eight-inch journey from head to heart. And for the priest and the Levite, who would have both been familiar with the law, their faith was in danger of becoming just a head religion, a religion that lost sight of the fact that people matter people matter and Christianity as a religion is the one that just attends meetings and sings songs and prays prayers but never actually heads out onto the Jericho road to love and serve and bless people it's quite probable that the priest and the Levite were either heading to or coming from the temple from church but their faith had become more of a duty it was just something they did rather than a lifestyle. So their heads were engaged, yes, but their hearts were disconnected and were cold and were indifferent and were apathetic towards people. And people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's got to be head and heart. It's got to affect not just what we know, but how we live. So three journeys. But to make those three journeys, I believe you need three things. You need open eyes and open hearts and open hands. And I think it is interesting in the story how the three travelers all had the first. They all had open eyes. Jesus makes it clear that all saw the injured man. They weren't totally blinkered or blind to need. But merely seeing wasn't quite enough. We've got to take it to those next two levels. And it was only the third person who did. 
It's only the Samaritan who opened his heart and his hands. And one of my biggest problems is that I often stop at the seeing stage. And so I see the pain in people's lives, the dysfunction, the hopelessness, the lostness. I see it. And we all do. But I wonder, how often do I go further? How often does my heart open? And do my hands open? And as I say, Jesus turned to the guy after he said that story and says, Who is his neighbor? The one who had mercy on him. Go and do likewise. Go beyond seeing. Go beyond right beliefs. Go beyond non-involvement. Go beyond just a religion. The role model in this story has come to be known as the Good Samaritan. Funny thing is, Jesus never calls him that. Actually, it appears he's just an ordinary man who saw another human being in need, recognized him as his neighbor, and loved him. And as we leave here and walk out onto our Jericho roads this week, that's the level of engagement we're invited to. We need, in the words of Elbow, to have open arms for broken hearts. And may God help us in those journeys. Let me pray. Father, I know for uh, maybe many people here tonight that is material that they have, or some of it have heard before. And I have to acknowledge God that even uh, sharing it again re-challenges me as to what has taken place between January 2009 and September 2011 in my own life and in my own journey with you. And God, I do want to discover life in all its fullness. I do want to know what it means to inherit eternal life. And so God, I pray that you would help me to love God with all my heart, soul, strength and mind and to love my neighbor as myself. Help me make those journeys that we've thought about this evening. May I have open arms for broken hearts. And in Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.